You love technology, you love privacy, and you cherish freedom in the Constitution. This is our culture and way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore that balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's Restore the number four, th.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon. Your thoughts. Encryption is ammunition. And in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots episode number 13, recorded on November 13th, 2020. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast. All right, welcome to the Privacy Patriots podcast. Uh, This is the post-election coverage special here. Uh, My name is Sam Richards. I am uh, on Twitter as Minneapolis Sam, and uh, I'm joined, I guess I'll go on my left here. (laughs) I'm joined on my left by uh, Kivas. Hi, I'm Kivas. part of the restore the fourth atlanta chapter and we still got dennis here too don't we oh yes uh yes indeed uh hi i'm uh dennis gack i'm in central wisconsin i mean one thing i'll note right off the start is that when you're looking at incoming presidents or just like you know back during the election when people were assembling scorecards based on privacy there really isn't a lot known about Joe Biden's positions on issues like surveillance and things other than his role in the Obama administration. Um, but I don't know if we wanted just to kick open that can of worms just yet. <laughs> but I will offer that up just right at the start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, I would agree. That. Like, it's a fairly unknown entity. He had some stuff in the 90s, but... Um... Considering the developments, it would be interesting to see his new views. Yeah, yeah I would absolutely. agree with that. Like, like I said, we, he's pretty much an unknown entity at this point. And uh, so we should probably lay down some basic context here. This is Friday night, um, November 13th. It, it, I didn't <laughs> tune into Trump's speech today a couple hours ago, but as far as I know, he still has not conceded after losing the election by uh, – an unrecoverable amount of votes. No recount could sway the election at this point. So that's kind of where we're at. And uh, yeah, this is um, this is going to just be the post-election episode that we hadn't posted too much recently for Privacy Patriots. So we decided to kind of throw things together and have a roundtable and share some some thoughts. And that was the one thing I'm I'm still trying to sort Joe Biden out here. Um, there was talk of having Amy Klobuchar, who is a, a senator from Minnesota, potentially being considered for the attorney general uh, position. And I I personally don't find her to be an ally on uh, civil liberties or, you know, social justice related issues either. Um, so my, I guess, immediate impression is that we're kind of going into a centrist administration, which judging how that went during the Obama administration, we're probably going to have a uphill battle when it comes to, you know, progress on civil liberties issues. 
Well, one well thing, I think one I, thing that's going to make a big difference potentially is going to be whether, you know, we have a, a, a Senate majority for the Republicans or the Democrats because it's already been pretty well put out there by, by Republicans. If they have the majority, they are not likely to approve anybody for cabinet positions that is labeled as an extremist. And so a lot of the candidates that have been discussed by the Biden administration as potential cabinet members could be, you know, mixed right off the get-go if we do have a Republican majority. If there's a Democratic majority, you're probably going to see some people that are a little bit further to the left. Um, and there may be some people that, uh, you know, we're aware of as being strong on uh, privacy issues and social justice issues and things of that nature that could really change the whole outlook for how the Biden administration proceeds. Um, obviously, he's going to have to be far more centrist. And he has built a career of being a centrist anyway. I kind of mm -hmm. think that um, a Biden presidency would perhaps be more akin to a Clinton administration than to an Obama administration, because I feel like Biden has made a career out of not rocking the boat and basically just keeping things the way that they've been for a long time, excluding, of course, the last four years. Obviously, we had a president who has made uh, a name for himself as working outside the norms of Washington. Joe Biden has spent so much time in Washington, um, which has its you know pluses and minuses, but he's built his career on that centrist platform, so I really think that we're going to see a lot of centrism from him. So um, the thing is, I think that... One of the things Joe Biden was talking about before was how he um, chose Kamala because, you know, of some of her stances and, um, and you know, being knowledgeable. Uh, also, since he said he mainly ran as a way to get steer the country back on the quote unquote right course and for the, you know, soul of America, I could see him taking more of a, you know, hands off approach. And um, also listening to some of the suggestions that uh, Kamala would have. And she has had some good uh, proposals in regards to Fourth Amendment rights. So that might be, um, you know, a, a positive factor um, in our favor. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I really hope so. And I, I, <laughs> I don't know too much about Kamala's uh, history with the Fourth Amendment other than just some stuff, anecdotal stuff, and just her track record I've read about when she was um, district attorney or chief prosecutor or whatever, mm -hmm. but, and that wasn't exactly great, but, I mean, then when early on in the no. election, Biden and Kamala, I mean, not so much Biden, but Kamala, she really, or when she was running, I guess, as presidential candidate herself, she really went and took a progressive kind of course. And I will also say that I think, apart from civil liberties things, Joe Biden's like tax reform pledge is actually a pretty fairly progressive plan. And I, I think obviously like you guys brought up the Senate and things, that's going to be a huge hurdle. Like it was uh, to any kind of attempt at reform or even like basic governance with Obama. But I think maybe we might be at a point where like, you know, forget the proud boys and stuff, but most of the country wants to, you know, put their Trump signs away and take off the mega hats and maybe start getting back to some kind of like 
working together and at least talk of bipartisanship. So mm-hmm. there, there's a chance to actually get some stuff done here and at least locally in Minneapolis, we're making sure. pretty good progress on some pretty big issues in a, in a city where, you know, George Floyd was murdered not even a year ago and city council hasn't done too much to reform the police or change public safety um, as a whole. But we have a coalition here and there, there's some stuff locally and that's kind of, where my head is at i'm i'm thinking that that would be the most important place to bring these fights like in atlanta or wherever Mm -hmm. else we're located so that's that i think that's probably where the change will come for this stuff i'm not as uh optimistic and i i feel like where their trump hats um especially for instance with the i feel like a lot of the i feel like uh once the the pain of losing and the acceptance settles in with the MAGA group. Um, I do believe that there is an opportunity for uh, some compromise in this country and for the tone to simmer down a little bit. I I will say, uh, speaking to the point made earlier, both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden were a lot more progressive in their ideas throughout the campaign than they have traditionally been. Um, Mention was made about Kamala Harris's time as a prosecuting attorney. And yes, it's true that her her record at that time was a bit on the the iffy side, shall we say. But she has been very outspoken in reform of, or in in the the, uh, positive, looking positively at reform, both of and criminal justice. Joe Biden has also done the same. And the fact that he reached out to Bernie Sanders and uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez shows that he's serious about trying to first unite the Democratic Party, then try to unite the country. And while I don't expect for a second that we are in the next four years going to all sit around a campfire singing Kumbaya, (laughs) I do believe that the, the outreach being made is going to eventually bear fruit. I think it's already borne fruit uh, among the Democratic Party by getting, you know, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, Bernie Sanders on board, bringing their followers a bit on board. Um, While it's been, you know, leery kind of support, it's still come. And I believe that the same thing is going to happen with, with the MAGA folk is that they're going to see, hey, this guy is not this far left extremist that he was portrayed as, which mm-hmm. I think most far left extremists have known from the get go. But, um, you know, people are going to start seeing, okay, like this guy does genuinely want to get things back to a sane conversation among Americans that we can have our differences, whether it be intra party differences or between the parties, um, you know, like, those differences are okay. It doesn't mean that we have to hate each other. It doesn't mean that we have to fight and argue and and that that's okay. Now what that impact is going to have on privacy issues, which is of course the main issue that we concern ourselves with. I'm not quite sure where that's going to lie. Joe Biden has surprised me a lot uh, for pretty much this whole election cycle. I, I had an opinion of him one way, um, he's proven me wrong with the outreach that he's, he's gone through. Um, so my hope is that this is going to be another example of that, where maybe he turns out to be 
more progressive, and more friendly about privacy and freedoms than I might have previously thought. So I guess I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic about the Biden administration. I think one area that um, we should really try to utilize is what I suspect to be the regulation of some of the social media and hopefully media more in general. Um, because uh, the Trump administration has, you know, uh, I guess we can all, you know, draw our own conclusions, been um, uh, softer towards Russia, their interference, um, election security, things of that nature. I think uh, once once the Biden administration, you know, take hold, that's going to be one of the things they're going to try to uh, fix and adjust. And, you know, in that same vein, we could make an argument for the need for more widespread encryption. Um, and so for the fact that we'll, again, you know, this is a, a bit, uh, 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 what do they say? Um, you know, uh, speculation, but um, once we get into that part of the conversation about protecting our security, about protecting, you know, the electorate's uh, cognitive autonomy, we can then, you know, start to uh, bring in that case of, like I say, widespread encryption. Mm. One thing, though, that's going to affect that tremendously is, and it'll be interesting to see what Joe Biden's take is going to be on this, but within the FCC, what's going to happen? The, um, the, the three-person panel on the FCC has been very, very friendly towards um, allowing the ownership of a lot of media by a very few number of people, and that has allowed for the silencing of a lot of different voices, and I think it's been very negative for for privacy um, when you've got you know uh, radio stations for instance in every market that are all owned by the same company you've silenced a lot of voices and I think that you know traditionally the role of the media and and I'm I'm rather pro media myself um, but the traditional role of the media has been to present as many voices as possible and allow for uh, more segments of to have their voices heard. And what's been happening over the course of the last number of years has been, I think, very negative to that. And I think from a matter of when you're looking at things privately, the more voices that we have out there as part of the conversation about privacy or about any other subject, the better we are off as a country. And so I'll be really, really interested to see how the Biden administration approaches the FCC, who ends up getting put on the FCC. And I'm not sure off the top of my head what the length of time for a member on that committee is, but I'm sure at some point along the way, pretty shortly here, uh, Mr. Biden is going to have an opportunity to put some, some different people on that, on that three-person panel, and we'll see how things change from there, if they change. Not speaking directly to the FCC, because that's a big... Um question mark for me too i think ajit pai left or resigned if i'm not mistaken which is good um that might be wrong Beautiful. i gotta double check on that <laughs> but yeah um but just this is a huge bone to pick since this is the uh post-election episode 
Tom Steyer should have bought Clear Channel Communications. He was talking about how he wanted to dump yeah. billions of dollars in for the Democrats. There's like 1,900 mm-hmm. right-wing talk radio stations in the country, and there's literally less than 10 progressive stations. If he wanted to do something, or Bloomberg Correct. for that matter, they could have just bought Clear Channel out of bankruptcy, right. and then all of a sudden the media ecosystem mm-hmm. is at least uh, somewhat more balanced because it's mm-hmm. it's been 30 years of right-wing yeah. Radio and internet now propagandizing well, and, these people that led to Trump. Yeah, and that's been, yeah, that's been one of my major bones to pick in general. Uh, myself, having been a former member of the media, I hear people always saying things about left wing media, left wing media, left wing media, and the the realities of it's, it it's false. Uh, is that that's that's not the way it is. It is because most people get their media from small town newspapers small town radio stations, local TV stations, and those outfits are rarely to never liberal. And as you pointed out, you look at the national viewpoint and you see, all right, a couple, you know, you've got a couple major newspapers that certainly have a liberal bias. You've got a couple TV stations that certainly have a mild liberal bias as well. And you've got a couple that are more of a conservative bias. But if you look at talk radio, consistently it's a conservative message you know a couple exceptions of course but generally speaking you have a very conservative bent to that sort of thing so i've always taken issue with that whole notion of a liberal media bias and that's getting a little bit away from what we're talking about but it will be very interesting to see what happens you know vis-a-vis the fcc yeah yeah that's that's kind of why i brought it up you just you got me thinking about media reform and stuff so I was like, dang it, Tom Steyer, you mm-hmm. could have yeah. changed the world here. <laughs> <laughs> he, he really could have. He really could have. Yeah, and that I was, was weird, too, up. because I've never seen a billionaire that only wore one tie on the entire campaign trail. <laughs> yeah, I just looked it up. Um, RG Pie? Uh, he's still... Yeah, he's still in, um the FCC chairman. At least that's what their website is saying. Um, oh, my mistake. But, uh, yeah, but uh, in regards to, you know, um, the media being consolidated, part of me wonder, is that because, at least in part, because so many people are going to um, more uh, 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 decentralized platforms like podcasts, you know, um, like these different uh, streaming services, um, because a, a lot of the people, you know, I've talked to or known, they'll look at those sort of platforms instead of just, you know, the TV or the newspaper or radio station. Yeah, there, that, there is definitely truth to that. And I think there was, I mean, there is a level of democratization of the media just because of the Internet. And you kind of saw that happen with live streamers and things um, popping off with the Occupy movement and subsequent movements. But I think. It's almost like the same thing with capitalism. At a certain point, like all of these little entities become gobbled up and like look at the impact that Facebook has on the narrative in the US and around the world entirely. I mean, the top stories on Facebook on a daily basis, it's like the top nine out of 10 will be like Breitbart or, you know, that kind of shit posting like pretend journalism propaganda outlet, like troll bait. And that's, I would think that like there are a lot of people making podcasts and there are a lot of like 
good news sources from people on the ground through Twitter and things like that. But I still think that the mass kind of corporate media landscape is smashing the independent voice. And that's going to take a lot of legislation and everything else to kind of address. But there, I, I do generally, I think that the longer the timeline and the more and more people getting online, then it'll be hard unless, you know, something drastic happens for there to be less freedom of speech and less options for news. But we got to be careful. You know, one of the things that like Facebook in the next 10 years or something, we're going to look back and be like, wow, these people should have been brought to the Hague because they seriously are enabling a whole lot of horrible shit overseas, but also tore down democracy here. Facebook is basically one of the main reasons why, you know, in Minnesota here, we have one daily newspaper and we're lucky that we have it, but it's failing. And that's, you know, a lot of places around the country don't have any reporters at their legislatures or city halls. Whereas, you know, even five or 10 years ago, there would be at least some coverage of, you know, what the government is doing from a professional journalistic standpoint. But now everybody just kind of takes it for granted and is like, well, if something's really fucked up, we're going to see about it on Facebook. So no big deal. And it's just kind of, you know, sleepwalking into a bad area. Um, and I, I keep kind of bringing up things that are dragging us away from the main point. But there is there is a lot to be said about the role of how, like, Facebook brought us to the political climate that we're at right now and how we're happy that there's a Joe Biden presidency and he got, like, the most votes of any president in the world or in, in our history. Yeah, I mean, I, I think going to a decentralized media landscape definitely has its challenges. And right now I definitely don't want to um, sound like I'm poo-pooing, you know, the issue of, you know, institutionalized journalism or, you know, um, um, you know, long-term supported investigative journalism. But what I am saying is that I, I hope that in the future um, as uh, you know, the, the decentralized venue for media becomes more widespread and, um, well backed that, uh, you know, investigative journalism will find a way to, uh, take advantage of that landscape as well. Yeah. I think, I think there will be something to fill the void because there kind of has to be. And there are, it's kind of inspiring too. Like, there are a lot of young people and just people that, fell into investigative and just regular reporting in the last, you know, mostly because of the protest movements for various causes. So it's, it's weird. It's like an exciting time for, to watch journalism, you know, change and morph, but it's also kind of scary and daunting at the same time. But I, I do have faith in, cause there has to be something, there has to be a new sustainable model. Otherwise, what are we just going to like have cup phones or something? <laughs> Yeah. And also, I guess, you know, um, you know, there, there's d- different communities where, you know, mainstream, whatever, whether it's the police, journalism, et cetera, doesn't pay us any mind anyway. And so a lot of these decentralized platforms actually enabled us to have a somewhat, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, investigative journalism, f- for instance, for the fact that, um, like when, um, black trans women get killed. Now there's different outlets that, uh, can, uh, you know, publish that information. And there's, because it's online as well, it makes it easier for people that's still in the closet, 
um, or having, you know, uh, uh, or don't know anybody in their local community to tap into that information and, um, you know, aid in that sort of uh, crowdsourced investigation. Because sometimes, you know, they'll say, oh, this person and then uh, died and then, you know, uh, somebody might be listening to it and then uh, call in or write in or whatever to say, yeah, that's my friend, et cetera, et cetera. So in that way, is you know, that's what I'm saying, where the whole um, landscape of media is kind of shifting and changing. But yeah, um, but yeah, like I said, uh, we definitely have to make sure to uh, protect um, long-term investigative journalism into some of these bigger uh, uh, power structures, such as uh, Congress or various different corporations, that it will require um, not only money, but uh, um, legal protections and social protections in the sense of everyone knowing and respecting that there's this organization that tried to do this. And trying to uh, protect said organization. Yeah, well put again. Um, and I, I'm curious, I'm sorry if I'm jumping all over the place, but Kivas, were you bringing up Kamala's uh, record on uh, surveillance kind of issues and privacy before, or was that, was that Dennis who I think might not be here anymore? No, he's not here. Um, yeah, I brought it up to say that she did do some positive things. Um, I know some people were, there was a bit back and forth on her, uh, reputation as a prosecutor as well. Um, which from, uh, what I gathered from, you know, uh, uh, the sources I listened to, um, seemed like she actually did pretty good. Um, although she might have, uh, charged people, uh, most of those convictions did not end up in jail time. Um, so there were like other ways that she was able to help essentially help, uh, prevent them. Of course, I'm talking about nonviolent sort of actors, um, help prevent them from, you know, um, facing debilitating, debilitating, uh, repercussions. Um, but also, for instance, like, uh, she supported having, having to have a warrant to even query the data for a 702. Although I've um, wow. mentioned, yeah, although I've mentioned that there's still some issues with the fact that, if I remember correctly, um, like the NSA is allowed to run their, you know, different algorithms on the data, um, and that doesn't count, and so it doesn't need a warrant, even though as somebody that, you know, works in the AI data science space, those algorithms are essentially a, a algorithmic representation of themselves, so that seems kind of like a way around the war in and of itself. But um, yeah, that was still, you know, uh, some progress, some uh, protections there. And on top of that, I kind of doubt, you know, I, I don't know Kamala, obviously, but I kind of doubt she would understand some of the potential um, pitfalls with allowing that sort of algorithmic access. She's probably got a better chance of understanding it than, than Joe Biden. <laughs> True. I guess another um, interesting or strange, alarming, whatever you want to call it, issue is that um, St. Louis is back in talks with persistent surveillance systems who want to fly spy planes uh, persistently above the metro area so that they can spy on everybody and pull up any kind of information, you know, further down the road to see if you were in fact at that bank at that time or whatever. Um, and yeah, that's, I think, a huge threat to privacy because they're obviously trying to use it as a test platform for PR and to show that, you know, it does reduce crime or whatever the line is. 
um, despite the fact that they were kicked out of Compton and Baltimore just recently. So I, I, I just bring that up because I think it's interesting and it's a issue that we're going to be fighting for a long time if we don't get a lid on it pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, that argument, oh, it reduces crime, to me, it's, it's kind of like, you know, um, kind of like the idea that, you know, um, you know, there's no violence if, if there's no humans in the room, you know, like, I mean, I, I guess that's a way to do it. It doesn't really seem, you know, the best. It's, st- it's still one of those, uh, security versus, you know, uh, liberty as, um, if I remember correctly, one of the founding fathers said, uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. It, it's one of those, uh, slow creeps that, you know, they're hoping to get away with and that, you know, after a while, everybody will just be okay with the idea of, you know, every part of their life just being up for, uh, grabs. And, and I said up for grabs because it's not, it's not just, you know, knowing the information. This information is going to be turned around and used more, more likely against you, whether that's economically against you or legally against you in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And it's just, like I've had the uh I guess privilege to sit in a couple of these Zoom calls. They always talk about how they want to use the fact that the planes are circling as a deterrence. And it's rarely spoken about how it has a, you know, high percentage of solving crimes or whatever. Um which also there's a lot to be said about that. And there were court cases in Baltimore where the judges said they weren't sure if these kinds of images and evidence could be held up in court, but they, the line from the company and their advocates is always a deterrence effect, which I think is inherently undemocratic because what is the difference between a spy plane spying on you and a police officer pointing a gun at you if it's about social control? You know, I mean, there are CCTV cameras all over St. Louis and they're already put in areas where it's like racially questionable why there's a concentration here versus there. And now the, just the fact that it's like, They don't talk about how they have a great record of solving crimes or, you know, they have great case studies where this and this happened. It's about people knowing that there's a plane so that they're always being watched. And I think that inherently is something that's un-American. And I don't see a way around that other than the fact that they're just using people that are, you know, so traumatized by crime in certain areas that they have nowhere else to turn because the traditional policing failed them. So it's just, there's so much like icky, <laughs> ickiness attached to it. And I, I really think that, you know, if we do, or the activists there do succeed in preventing them from getting a new contract to fly over the city all the time, then maybe they lose in three cities and they'll stop trying. But yeah, it's, it's another uphill battle, but I think, I think people are waking up to it. And now that there's, you know, Trump is taking less and less oxygen out of the narrative on a daily basis, we probably exactly. could get a lot of people to make good progress on a lot of these issues. And I think privacy should definitely be on the top of people's lists, um, especially because, you know, surveillance and enables and empowers racial policing systems. So we can't just get rid of and defund the police and replace them with a high powered surveillance apparatus and think that we did the good job because uh, that's, potentially even more dangerous um but that's that's that rant <laughs> yeah i'm glad you went there because i was actually going to talk about how you know um which is one thing we have been doing but 
making sure that a part of the police reform that'll inevitably inevitably be um one of the topics of discussion for congress uh with uh um police brutality we need to also make sure that um we're also peeling back their surveillance powers and enforcing and strengthening our privacy rights um so yeah uh and yeah about that's one of the things i talked about before about it feels like there's a news embargo because you know mm-hmm. the news is so hyper focused on trump even though i mean honestly to me nothing throughout this administration has been surprising um <laughs> Maybe, you know, that's the pessimist in me. Maybe, I mean, also, I mean, honestly, you know, uh, being a part of different minority groups, it definitely gives me um, a different perspective on, um, you know, people's nature. But uh, yeah, so for me, a lot of times I've many times said I would just rather them not even pay attention to what he says, especially because a lot of times they admit it. He'll say one thing and then he'll go back and he'll go back and forth. I'd rather they just wait, see what the whole team as a whole says and move from there um, so that we, we can fake, uh, focus more on, you know, other issues. And for instance, like throughout this whole four years, I don't think I've heard. Maybe once or twice I might have heard about news in foreign countries. And I think that was mainly like, uh, <laughs> Brexit and, yeah. um, COVID. Other than that, like usually you would get a little bit of something like, oh, say we met with so and so and they're having issues with this, but. Oh yeah, my God. No, that, that's, that. that's exactly correct. And that's one of another bone to pick or whatever. The, the whole thing about drones and drone strikes and the air wars that we have going on illegally, I guess, if you want to go down that road, in a bunch of countries, we haven't heard a word of that since Trump became the president. And he has escalated it to an insane degree. And that's just like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Even though there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the world, the news ecosystem is intensely focused on one crazy, stupid man. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, and, and on top of that, he'll say a lot of, you know, racist, sexist things, and they should be condemned, but at the same time, it's like, people have been saying this is the type of person he is since he took office, so is it really news at this point? You know, it's... Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like how many times you have to see a compilation of supporters saying incorrect, racist, you know, misogynistic, whatever kind of things, and then he dismisses it, or he's like, Oh yeah, that that convoy, that ISIS looking convoy that tried to run the Biden bus off the road. They were just trying to protect them. Like, get out of here with that. Yeah, I mean, but one one thing I, I guess I'm a bit fearful on is like even though Kamala has a pretty good record and Joe has a iffy record at best, um I guess part of me is just like afraid that uh, they'll be too sympathetic to um, like law enforcement and um, essentially giving cover for them to actually increase their powers. Um, So for instance, like a lot of times uh, with, uh, you know, surveillance and stuff like that, when they're trying to install back doors or stop encryption as a whole, they'll bring up things like terrorism or um, 
or drugs or like even, uh, you know, trigger warning, you know, child pornography, um, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, and so again, it's one of those things where I feel, well, I, I guess another thing I, I wanted to mention, I feel like when it comes to, you know, encryption versus not encryption, I feel like maybe because I'm not an expert in encryption, but I feel like there's room for creativity and I don't think a lot of times it's really being addressed. Like one of the things I was suggesting was um, either have an encryption method that like has two keys or maybe just send a copy of your key for whatever encryption you're doing to the judicial branch. So then that way um, the police can get a warrant for that information, but it's just not sitting in their back office, which yeah. un- Sadly, they did not take that approach with um, wiretapping. Uh, for mm-hmm. instance, I think it's called the Kala Act, something like Digital Telephony Act that Biden had supported that uh, enables, um, makes it easier for uh, law enforcement to tap a person's phone. Oh, so yeah. Again, so, again, it's one of those instances where, okay, I get that technically they should be allowed to do this. But actually, they should only be allowed to do this after they get a warrant. So shouldn't like mm-hmm. the the judicial system actually be the holder of the keys? Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think in a good perfect system that would be the case for sure. Um, there are things now, however, that are you know like administrative subpoenas. You can just get the records from the cell phone carrier or all kinds of different vendors just based on reasonable suspicion which is like the same level of uh, legality required to pull someone over. Um, And there's, I I can't, I think it's just called fast warrants. And it's literally like, um, you know how they have those computers in the squad cars. This one has a printer or something attached to it. So like if I'm a cop and I pull up to something, someone's house and I decide that I want to go in there, I'll just literally use this computer system and it goes to a judge's cell phone or tablet and then they just sign off. And the whole point is that it just speeds up the, uh, the warrant issuing process. So there's, I'm uh, concerned with how cozy prosecutors and some judges, I guess, are with police, even in Minneapolis, which is a progressive city or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think one thing that keeps coming up when I do these, you know, stories on, um, surveillance and civil liberties it's just like people aren't even aware of what the laws are that are already on the books like in Minnesota there was a law passed in 2015 and it's called the tracking warrant law and part of it requires judges to sign off anytime any kind of electronic surveillance is used and ostensibly the law that was on the books since 2015 says that if anyone was subject to a search regardless of if the evidence was brought in court or used in an investigation after 90 days, they're supposed to be notified via a letter in the mail. And literally no one in the States ever received that. And I know, and because I'm going to publish a story on the intercept pretty soon that they're doing cell phone, high level cell phone surveillance based on reasonable suspicion and ignoring the tracking warrant law that was specifically put in place to rein this kind of abuse in. So it's like, you you have to fight such an uphill battle to get people's awareness of what's going on in their name with their money. 
um, even just down the road at their local police department. And then it just, I, I'm sorry if I sound kind of pessimistic, but like, I think there's a lot of issues going on right now that if we want to make sure that privacy and civil liberties generally are protected and enforced for the future, we're going to have to do a pretty good campaign of explaining why it's an issue and why it's linked to police brutality and the defund the police movement and everything else. Um, I know the the city council election here in Minneapolis, it's going to be just an onslaught of people talking about, oh, well, you guys said defund and now all of a sudden crime's shooting up and there's carjackings constantly. And it's just, it's such a, it's a facade because crime was already going up because of the pandemic and they just took advantage of the political situation and they're taking public safety hostage to preserve their own power. So when we're pushing for these reforms, we're already going to be stepping into a place where they're, they kind of are on the aggressive, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm worried, but I do think that obviously the political environment now is way, way better <laughs> than it was, you know, just a couple of years or months ago. Um, but we're going to have to be really, really organized going into a future where people, you know, value convenience over privacy on a in more and more increasing basis. Yeah. Yeah. You um, touched on a few things I actually wanted to talk about. Um, so, I mean, I guess the quickest thing in regards to like defund versus abolish. I mean, I have, you know, tried to talk to people about that whole pros- prospect and there are issues in regards to differentiating the defund movement from the abolish movement. And also, I think even when I heard of defund, I was saying like that wasn't necessarily the best slogan because it sounds like splitting hairs when you say defund versus abolish because it's not a reduction in budget, which is actually what they're advocating for. It sounds Mm -hmm. like a don't give them any money at all, which would essentially amount to complete abolishment. And so that's where I was saying some of the sloganing is kind of a bit misleading and I felt like, you know, they should have had like a maybe abolish and rebuild that sort of thing. I think a lot of people could kind of understand a bit better, get behind more quickly. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, I, I, I understand people's, and then there's also the abolish side of it, which I understand people's impetus for it, but you know, I still have questions in regards to, um, the practicality around it, but you know, without getting too in depth about that, one of the things that I think is particularly defining about this issue is that it, it is a bit of a silencing issue. Um, and I think that silencing is, and I'll elaborate after, you know, I say this, I think that silencing is why it's able to go on and proliferate so easily and why, you know, it's been basically two presidential terms since, um, Snowden's uh, disclosures, and there still has been little to no uh, presidential or high-level um, debate around things like privacy and security for the average American citizen. Um, right. Even though the technology has become more advanced, more per- per- pervasive in our personal lives, I mean, people have you know all different types of of uh, you know. Um, technology in their bodies that's, you know, collecting data, um, 
you know, not to mention socially, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, like I say, very little to no discussion on our digital rights as a whole. Um, even, you know, even, you know, recently when we're going through another uh, presidential debate, vice presidential debate, all that, even um, the, the candidates for the nominee for party still did not include, you know, that topic. Uh, and yeah, so the thing about this issue that's particularly silencing um, is because it's it's a thing where people are realizing the potential for technology to go wrong, and it's and it's even more impactful because that technology is already everywhere. So, for instance, when you get into things like IoT and how all the devices like basically communicate with one another, well, I shouldn't say all, but many devices can communicate with one another and then connect to the internet. And, you know, people are now realizing, well, is basically all these devices spying on me and manipulating me, et cetera. For instance, like notifications, um, how that's, you know, triggering people to, uh, uh, you know, engage in different software to get the right sort of emotional stimulus, et cetera. And so when, um, when I first, first joined, uh, Restore the Fourth, I personally am proud of myself because, um, it was actually when I was just about to go into graduate school for data mining, which at the time, the main hire, the, the most well-known um, employer of data miners was Booz Allen Hamilton, which Snowden leaked on. Oh, my part. God. So, you know, I still went and did it, even though I knew, like, OK, this could be hurting my, <laughs> you know, my future job <laughs> prospects. <laughs> but I still did it anyway. And I bring that up because when I did that and I went and talked to people, um, you know, we were uh, I, I'm not sure if it's technically called a demonstration. I know it's not technically a protest. I, I think it was like a demonstration or something. But, yeah, essentially we were telling people like, hey, do you want to join us? You know, um, we're trying to stop all this mass surveillance. And a lot of pe- most people agreed with what we were doing, but also most people were too afraid to, you know, put their name, you know, down on the official, you know, database. So that's what I'm saying in the sense of, you know, it being a silencing issue. And because people aren't being vocal about, you know, their dislike of it, it, it gives cover for politicians to just, you know, be a okay with it. And so mm-hmm. then you have um, law enforcement, you know, be essentially being unopposed in this one-sided debate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and on a national level, it's just magnified even more, I think, because was it um, one of the Nova publications during, I think, the Bush administration was like United States of Secrets. And they tried, I, I think they succeeded. They probably missed a couple, but they tried to kind of make a map of every single intelligence and defense contractor that was in the U.S. And lo and behold, of course, just like the military industrial complex, it's obviously weighted in certain areas, but it's basically spread out across every congressional district in the United States on some level. Um, maybe like secondary or, you know, tertiary kind of companies and activities and things, but it is, it's, it's hard to oppose, I think. And it's really kind of like an esoteric issue. So in short of some kind of major news or other kind of scandal, it's, doesn't seem like it comes up a lot in the legislature except for from a few senators and representatives that are um, pretty good on the issues, but too, too small in number. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, I, that just reminded me of some stories um, 
I'll tell you offline later. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I want to hear but, stories from Booz Allen Hamilton too. <laughs> oh, I never work with them. <laughs> oh, God. okay, gotcha. <laughs> but um, yeah. So I mean, part of the thing is, it kind of relates to uh, this thing I've been telling myself I need to write about, but it's like the erosion of reality. Um, so essentially because we're human beings, we're pretty smart and we can essentially master quote unquote, our environment, um, particularly through science and technology. And so as that capability steadily increases, um, that means we're getting more powerful and we can essentially alter more and more things. For instance, um, another area, CRISPR, we're now, you know, able to alter our own genetic uh, makeup. And so, um, yeah, and, and so with that increase of power, again, related to the silencing issue, people are realizing, well, hey, this also means bad things can happen, you know, and it's, it's the, the, that struggle to think, okay, do I want to continue to advance, um, our capabilities? So then that way we can stay safe or we can, you know, prevent people from dying and, you know, things of that nature. Um, or do I, would I rather, you know, say, well, forget all that and let's not increase, you know, any more capabilities. And that way we won't have to worry about like gray goo or, you know, um, man-made viruses and things of that nature. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think maybe we're getting close to a point where we should say like, all right, science has progressed just enough. I think we'll take it easy at this point. Especially when you bring up Grey Goo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I could get that. Uh, one of the things, uh, even though I have issues with Andrew Yang um, as a candidate, but one of the things I did like was the uh, the making more mainstream the idea of universal basic income. Um, oh yeah. And as, and as somebody that works, you know, in AI data science, it's like. I would um I would hope that our ability to create uh systems that in some cases can replace like human effort would amount to a decentering of the need of work. So essentially uh the idea would be that once we get our population under control and therefore we can um we can also therefore have uh our food under control and our housing under control um because you know the more people the more housing and food you need um and there's only but so much space on the world um then as far as the actual need for labor to do these basic things that we all have to do in order to survive that can be outsourced to machines more or less and so we could get into a space where people don't really need to work is more so something, you know, um, you only do it as more so a consequence of your passion for something. I, I love that idea. And I think if we're, if we're lucky, we could progress to a future or something like that. But it's like, I guess I still have questions too, because then how would, how would things kind of function? I mean, maybe it's just, I'm, so indoctrinated by capitalism that it seems hard to have like a 
of laissez-faire sort of societal setup. But I guess maybe if we were all, you know, there was some kind of direct democracy and you could <laughs> you could vote from, you know, the Internet on issues and then go out and live your life, I think it would be great. But it just seems like I, I feel like there would be difficult to do like resource allocation for you know, because as shitty as it is, commerce and capitalism is pretty good at getting goods and services to go where they're wanted, I guess. I mean, it's not great about distributing wealth, obviously, or any other kind of factors, but it can it can serve as a market, I guess. So it just seems it's like, I don't know, I guess I, I have trouble kind of seeing that far into the future because I feel like there will still be some sort of system where humans maintain a social order on other humans if that makes sense yeah i mean i I do think there are ways uh to address some of what you're talking about for instance you know i didn't say you well actually i did say about universal basic income which would imply that there would be still some sort of um um, capitalist system. And what I was going to say was I didn't say there wouldn't be capitalists, but what I said actually implied that there would be a capitalist sort of system. No, you're right. I kind of put that in your mouth. No, you're right. <laughs> so, but what that would, what, but what it would imply is that there isn't as much as, you know, a need to, uh, go out and just make sure to produce, 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 you know, or just profit, profit, profit. We would have, and, and I think, also, um, I think people naturally want to do things, quote unquote, and most of those things are actually going to be helpful or creative in some way or regard. But that's a bit <laughs> that's uh, we're, that's a bit far away from uh, Fourth Amendment issues. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all kind of related together in some level, I guess. <laughs> but yeah. I don't have a patriot, but I do have a pariah. <laughs> Oh, okay. Sure. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Um, so General Michael Hayden, <laughs> I don't know if you caught that on Twitter recently, if you guys follow that closely, but um, the, the incoming or I can't even remember his name because they change so often, but the new director of national intelligence, he uh, got trolled on Twitter by Ken Klippenstein, a journalist who does amazing work with freedom of information act and, He's got a lot of sources that leak him stuff from Homeland Security and other places. But there was a, it was Veterans Day, obviously. So, you know, Michael Hayden, who was the warrantless wiretap king at the NSA under Bush, um, he, <laughs> he said something about Veterans Day on Twitter and Ken tried to troll him by getting him to, uh, retweet like praise for Ken's quote unquote uncle who was actually a war criminal, <laughs> William Casey or Bill Casey. And Michael Hayden didn't fall for it, but the incoming director of national intelligence did. And I thought it was kind of incredible poetic justice to have the guy who's supposed to lead our national intelligence apparatus, not even know who former war criminals are. <laughs> and uh, so I, I nominate Michael Hayden as the pariah because he went on CNN and got really pissed off about, someone trying to troll him on twitter and uh he's a he he, if you know if we were going to continue this segment segment into the future i'd probably nominate him for a pariah every single episode because he as an individual did so much damage to the fourth amendment and just 
American rule of law and democracy as it is. But yeah, that's that's my pariah nomination for this episode. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, but at the same time, I could kind of understand why he wouldn't remember a war criminal because isn't technically he won or nobody that he did though he was the one that remembered it but the the incoming dni didn't (laughs) and so so hayden hayden was on cnn you know on veterans day or the day after and he had to bring it up and you know he's such a weird dude on another level too just he seems like a strange man (laughs) yeah i mean when somebody thinks you know hey it's okay to just spy on everybody you got to start wondering, like, that's right. <laughs> that's just like the, the, the tip of the iceberg of the creepiness. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. But, I, I think a lot of, it could be said for a lot of people in positions of power in general. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, so, yeah, we had a question on do you think uh, Trump will try some crazy spy stuff during the lame duck period? Um, I would say yes, but the thing is, I know they were saying he was having issues with Gina Haspel because she didn't want to declassify information for him to give to, I think they said the Russians or presumably the Russians. Um, also, I think... I, I just don't think Trump has the political capital or social ties to sway um, people into doing any crazy spy stuff for him, especially since, you know, he went on a rant about um, the FBI and the FISA court. So I doubt they will be willing to give him any favors. Yeah, I I think I generally agree with that too, but it's it's tough to say because I could also see like a Saturday Night Massacre type situation, um, and uh, I think One Cade on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, she's a prominent journalist. She kind of laid out a a roadmap, I guess you could call it, where you know it was a list of like people Trump would have to fire basically down the chain of command before he would be, you know, a de facto sort of the one picking surveillance targets. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I think thankfully, like, you know, there are a lot of other countries dealing with right-wing populism where the, uh, the populist leader is competent. I think we're lucky. Sadly, that's one of the things that saved us, I think, is just that Trump is incompetent and kind of a buffoon. So I don't, I mean, I, I obviously think that he'll like ask for things to be done that are beyond the pale and, unconstitutional or whatever but i don't know if he's as coordinated and he's maniacal but i don't know if he's as you know like an evil genius to necessarily do something incredibly drastic however his uh you know malignant narcissism those kind of people especially you know on a such a big worldwide stage i think pushed into a corner could be very dangerous and that was exactly oh my god that was a exactly what me and a lot of other anti-surveillance activists were saying for years it's you know we're protesting during obama about surveillance and wiretapping and things because the line was always 
what happens when we elect a crazy person or, you know, someone with fascist tendencies. He'll have all these tools at his disposal to use basically unchecked. So it's like, I don't, I don't guarantee or think necessarily something will happen on the spying and surveillance front that'll be scandalous. But also I think kind of the entire system is scandalous. So it's, it's hard to sort of parse, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, I think it's, I won't say every human, but I think it is a very common human trait to want to have like the leader, you know, the hero, um, the boss. Oh yeah, for sure. Bernie Sanders for me. <laughs> yeah. And so I feel like that's in part why Congress tends to defer capabilities to the president because you know that essentially makes the president the decider and so politically you know he's or she i mean historically sadly been just he but uh the president would be the uh bearer of whatever fallout happens from that decision um and so that way uh you know members of congress don't have to uh, um, you know, worry about it. Hopefully, um, that can be something that they'll address in, um, the new administration, although I kind of doubt it. I think that's more of an institutional problem, um, which, you know, I also have suggested that Congress as a whole gets fired every so often because I know <laughs> in like sociology, there's a thing of like group dynamics to where even if you like, remove half the people or more than half the people from a group and you're replacing with new people basically you'll have you'll essentially have the same group more or less but yeah 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 that makes sense i i I remember a while ago there was a fire them all sort of campaign that's probably kind of consistent year to year whatever election election but i was on board with that it's like why not i mean the electorate if you're if your approval rating of congress is like eight percent or whatever it is why not just vote every single one of them out but it it's like like you said everybody's got their guy or gal or whatever and that's how it usually goes is like i hate congress but i love my congressman and that's across the board not very helpful in a lot of situations well um, I, I was just saying like when i was saying they have their the this the that i'm i'm stressing the the in the sense of it being singular so, um, mm. you know, people are more, uh, like cults of personality. It's usually a cult of personality of one person. It's not like yeah. a group, uh, that people are, you know, really into. And so, uh, yeah, in that sense, it's easier for people to focus on one person rather than, you know, all of Congress. Yeah, for sure. But what do you think, uh, Trump will do? I, obviously, um, assuming that he does leave the Oval Office and the moat is not constructed or whatever, but what do you think Trump is going to do with his new life as a civilian if he's not like thrown in jail for various <laughs> frauds and accusations? Yeah, um, I'll send something uh, from production, I guess, <laughs> about 2024. I think that's a possibility. Uh, I think definitely he's just going to keep trying to scam people like he's been doing. Um, you know, no reason for him to stop there if he if he gets off. Um, probably trying to leverage his time in 
uh, as the president, um, to get like foreign, uh, foreign ties with dictators and stuff like that. Um, you know, basically seeking out power and money. Uh, so, um, I guess the only other thing I think he might try to do is, well, they were saying, I think his children or at least one of his kids was trying to take over the RNC. And so that way he can try to be like a, a, a royalty maker. And, um, uh, there was another idea. It was just in my head and it just left. <laughs> uh, oh, he's oh. going to be like taking the best at the pageant or something just well, with higher stakes. I wouldn't say the best. I mean, the best for him. But, well, um, yeah, yeah. And probably, and probably charging people to like for his endorsement sort of thing. So he's going to run them pockets. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I think you're probably right. And it, honestly, it's kind of truly pathetic to watch, uh, like the Republican parties. I, I was going to say evolution, but like devolution over the last 20 years or whatever. Cause I don't like, Jesus Christ, looking at it from a historical perspective, how can you argue that the Republican Party has been a force for, like, good, generally? Uh, like, the American, whatever, middle class or working person, or just, like, I don't know, anything in general, because all these illegal wars and just, you know, domestic strife and lies and tearing down democracy and the Constitution, it's like, how much does it take for people to realize that they're the values they think they're fighting for are just, you know, vapor or the opposite of what they think? It's insane. But I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's another rant for a different, <laughs> different format or something. But yeah, um, I think one thing is we have to do better at telling people more privacy focused software and hardware alternatives um because you know there is the thing of legally getting our rights recognized but we have to also show the creators of these potential technologies that you know economically or at least just buy-in wise uh socially it's worth their time that people actually do support this because I have had conversations with people before in the past where they say, well, nobody actually really cares about their privacy. And so mm -hmm. being able to point to like, Hey, you know, signal our, the messaging app and video calling app has been getting a lot of use and they've been getting, um, they've been increasing their membership. So that shows, yeah, people are concerned about it, you know, um, or Jitsi, you know, the video web conferencing app we use, um, you know, again, that's been getting a lot of usage showing that, yeah, people actually do care about it. I mean, and I think also because in the past, uh, encryption was more, um, it had barriers to entry being that you had to know coding or computers really well and also, you know, statistics and mathematics to understand which sort of encryption algorithm was best. But luckily we've, you know, the field has advanced enough to where we have all these different um, options that's easily yeah. used by novices. Yeah, and I think you brought it up, but we're on Jitsi right now. And, uh, like a lot of people have been forced to use Zoom, which <laughs> the CEO or somebody, you know, early on in the pandemic talked about how, oh, yeah, of course, if law enforcement comes up to us, we'll definitely 
hand over user data to whatever the request is. Whereas uh, Jitsi is encrypted end to end. Signal is amazing. And yeah. So they I don't think even have it themselves to give. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that makes it uh, a lot better and more secure. And yeah, I think it's, it's easy to do. I mean, why not make the switch over? Plus Signal, you can see who has it, who you're messaging, and who is just on a regular um, SMS. So that's helpful too. I still haven't figured out PGP. <laughs> um, we covered a lot of ground. Um, not all of it was, you know, Fourth Amendment related, but um, yeah, I thought it was good conversation. Uh, thanks to Dennis, who had to bounce earlier, but was uh, had a lot of good ideas early on. And Kivis, it was a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Um, Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> thanks to uh, everybody who didn't want to chime in as well for your work on this. Well, that about wraps things up. We hope you enjoyed episode 13 of Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for the next episode. In the meantime, head over to privacypatriots.org, where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. So keep watching the watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.